Well, we're often either-or kind of people at times when we should be both-and people. Now, sometimes it's right to insist upon the either-or, to shun the both-and, especially in our squishy postmodern age. Sometimes it's not a both-and kind of thing. Something's right and something's wrong. It is an either-or. But on the other hand, many things go together. Some things go together that don't seem like they go together. Some things go together that we maybe would prefer they didn't go together. So when it comes to certain aspects of the Christian life, we tend to wrongly be either-or people. I could give many examples of this, but... The example we'll use today is one of praise. We tend to lean off one side of the horse in the area of praise in a variety of different ways. So today I want to talk to you about a both-and kind of praise. A both-and kind of praise. You'll see what I mean as we work our way through it. But first, let's remind ourselves that praise is the most important thing in the world. I said last week that worship is worth-ship. That's the old English word for worship, and rightly so, because worship begins with discerning worth. And this is something deep within all of us. Even if you're not religious, we appraise things, don't we? We're all, I said last week, appraisers. We're all assessors. We evaluate And what we find worthy, we give it our praise. We enjoy it, and we talk about it. That's what praise is. It's knowing something, enjoying something, and talking about that something. As such, praise is everywhere. All kinds of different praise. Much of it broken and empty. And some of it restored and real. But praise is the most important thing in the world. It's how the whole story began, according to Job 38, which says that at creation, God's angels sang together. They shouted for joy at what God was doing. Praise is the theme on which the Bible ends. Revelation 22, verse 3 says, In the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be anything that's accursed. It'll just be the throne of God and the Lamb And his servants will worship him. That's the end of the story. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that praise and singing, these things are no small part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit looks like, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks or praise always And for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about praise when we're filled with the Spirit. And then right in the middle of our Bibles, we have a whole book of praises. The longest book of the Bible is a book of praises. In older Hebrew manuscripts, sometimes this book was called praises, not psalms. We call it psalms. And in many manuscripts, that is the case. That's the title it's given. It just means songs, really. But some of these Hebrew manuscripts called it praises. And you can see why if you think about it. Because even if you're tempted to think 
that not all psalms are praise psalms. Some of them are sad. Some of them lament. Some of them pray against God's enemies. Remember that praise is often a key part of the equation. So we have these psalms called lament psalms. They, in a sense, complain to the Lord. They pour burdens out before the Lord. They tell God what's wrong. But remember... It doesn't stay there in those lament psalms. They move from lament to remembrance, who he is, what he's done, what's coming still. And then trust, resolve. Except for one, they all end in praise. Some of them end in four verses of praise. Some of them end in a line of praise. But they almost always end in praise. You have these psalms called imprecatory psalms, praying against God's enemies, praying against what is against God. And it doesn't look like praise at all. In fact, it has its own problem. It looks like revenge. But we saw when we looked at imprecatory psalm some months ago, the key to the concern of an imprecatory psalm is that the enemies are not praising him. They're not reckoning him aright. So praise is the golden thread that's weaved throughout the fabric of the book of Psalms. And we've been in the book of Psalms on and off, mostly on, since September of last year. We've looked at not every psalm, but many of them, and usually one per week. We've touched upon the theme of praise many times already. But as I said last week, I think we're due to camp out on the topic of praise, because Psalms is a book of praises because we were made for praise, because that's where the story begins. That's how the story ends. It's so much of what we do as a church. We get together and we we sing and we hear God's word preached. And so this week we begin a four-week mini-series, sort of a series within a series, just on praise in the Psalms. And unlike other times where we focused on one Psalm for that week, I read at the beginning, and we sort of pick it apart and work our way through it, this time we won't have a single Psalm. We'll roam around all over the Psalms to to find what God's Word says about praise. In upcoming weeks, we'll talk about the ingredients of praise, the sound of praise, the aims of praise, And then this week, I want to lay out some basics of praise, some basics. I have five different both ands about praise. First, that the Psalms show us that our praise should be constant and corporate. Constant and corporate. His praise should be every day, everywhere, and it should be in a meeting of the covenant community. As Bob Coughlin says, In his great book on worship, he says, it's event and it's every day. Now, we talk about this a lot around here. Uh, I've made that distinction maybe 20 times in sermons uh, since I've been here for over the last eight or nine years. I won't spend much time on it today because we do talk about it a lot, but we should see that both constant and corporate worship are in the Psalms. It might surprise you that constant worship is in the Psalms, considering it's essentially a hymnal. It's, it's a book for the gathering of God's people throughout the ages. But you see constant worship, every day, everything, everywhere worship, even in the Psalms. 
Psalm 34, 1. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not just on Sunday or Saturday. Not just on the feast day. Not just at the time of sacrifice. But at all times continually. As it says in Psalm 35. My tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Or Psalm 40. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. And one more, Psalm 71. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. It's constant worship. We need to know that God's word in the Psalms and all over calls us to worship him in everything we do, to think on him throughout our day. As one old book put it, it's practicing his presence. As the way it puts it in Romans 12, it's seeing our bodies, our whole life as living sacrifice. We're going through life, as it were, in the temple of his presence. Everything we do can be holy, should be thoughtful, should be an expression of rejoicing and thankfulness, and and prayer should be quick. And his praise should be quick on our lips. Constant worship, but also corporate worship. The Psalms assume corporate worship. They talk about corporate worship. They invite corporate worship. We saw last week from Psalm 95 there that it has the the phrase, little phrase, let us, six times. In the plural, let us. Let us give thanks. Let us sing. Let us praise him with shouts of joy. Six times in one psalm. It's all over the place. It assumes togetherness. It doesn't just think that we should get together and do this because, well, it's efficient to do it together. Or you can hold each other accountable if there's actually a formal time once in the week where you do it. You get together. You have to schedule it in. Keep it on the calendar. That kind of thing. No, it's clear that God has purposes for a people of his own to relate to each other in unity and love, and to be united together, to see each other united together on worship and community and mission. So these psalms of ascent, a whole section of psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, which are to be sung on the way to corporate worship. These are driving in the minivan on the way to church psalms. Oh, they don't always relate to your drive on the way to church, but they're songs which anticipate unity. That's where one of you find one of those psalms. How beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The anticipation of being together in worship. Not either or, constant or corporate, but both and, constant and corporate. Second thing I want to show you today is that our praise should be Bible formed and Bible filled. The Bible should form our worship and it should fill our worship. The Bible tells us what to do when we come together, but it also gives us what to say when we come together. Let's pick on each of those Bible formed and Bible filled. Bible formed. When the Psalms tell us to do this or that thing in praise to God, clap your hands, sing, shout, give thanks, they're really prescribing for us what we should do, right? They're describing worship, but 
They're also prescribing worship. If you think about it, they're often commands. Shout to the Lord isn't just an invitation. It's not just one man's opinion. It's not just a helpful suggestion. It's not just a good example. It's a command. Shout to the Lord. Sing. Now let me introduce you to a theological term for this. You might be familiar with it. A few of you will be anyway. Most of you won't be. This is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is in the Reformation tradition of church history. And it says that when we get together for corporate worship, we do what he says to do. We don't do anything that he hasn't forbidden. Now, I know that's confusing because it's a double negative. But there's really no better way of saying it. Except to say, the Bible insists, the Reformation tradition would insist, we don't add to his worship. We don't get clever about worship. Let me show you an example. Turn back to Leviticus 10. Here's the classic passage showing us that principle that we don't add to God's worship. He tells us what to do, and we do that. We don't do anything else that he hasn't forbidden. Leviticus 10 is the story of Nadab and Abihu, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, these are priests and son of the high priest, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay, so God tells them how to, how to do worship, burn certain things, sacrifice certain things, certain ways, certain ways to prepare, certain ways to cleanse themselves before they come. And they did something, we're not sure what, that was unauthorized, but it was unauthorized because the Lord had not commanded it. It wasn't unauthorized because he had forbidden it. So what happens? Verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God killed them for being clever with worship. Verse 3 shows us how important this is. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron bit his tongue. Aaron clenched his jaw shut. His sons are dead because they did something of adding to God's worship. We're not even sure what. The Westminster Confession of the 17th century puts it like this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is limited by his own revealed will in the Bible. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, inferring what's really behind creative worship. With any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. I agree with that. Now, Christians, different churches and different traditions would apply that differently. Some would think that means no PowerPoint. 
Some would think that means no technology, no microphones, because that's not in the Bible. Some would think that if you're going to go down this path, then that means you've got to go and do what the Old Testament says to do. Well, we know there are things in the Old Testament that have been transformed or even canceled out in the New Testament. Forms of worship are slightly different. So going the New Testament, what do we see about what we do when we come together? The New Testament tells us when we meet together like this, we should do five things. We should pray. We should read scripture. We should hear preaching. We should, from time to time, do the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we should sing. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 command us to get together and sing. So it's not just out of preference that we don't add to our worship here with dancing ribbon girls. I'm sure that's, I like that. I'm kind of fascinated by the, the ribbon thing, that flowing ribbon. You know what I'm talking about, right? That would be really interesting up here in between the instruments, partly for the danger of it. But we don't do that. We don't do feats of strength here. See if someone can lift this over their head as they quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We don't do sock puppets here. We just don't. We don't do paintings here. It'd be nice if someone was painting something right there while I was preaching, and I'm sure it would make the sermon a whole lot better. It really would. But we're going to go ahead and lean on what God says we should do and not trust our ingenuity. Oh, paintings and sock puppets and feats of strength and ribbon girls are all fine. But not when we come together. We do what he said we should do. We're not free to do whatever he hasn't forbidden. And so Drew and I never sit down on a Wednesday and let's, let's just have a brainstorming meeting and really think outside the box. Give him something crazy next week and really surprise him. You know what you're going to get. It's like a combination lock, right? There are certain things that are a given. Five of them. Lord's Supper and baptism happens when it happens. It doesn't happen all the time. But four to five things that happen. And we put them in different orders sometimes, and we change the song, and we change the scripture reading, and it might have a different feel or flow or whatever. But, but all the things are the same. There's a theological reason for doing the same stuff every week and trusting the Lord that he's in it and he can use it. It's by the foolishness of the gospel preached that God chose to save. The Bible forms our worship, but it also should fill our worship. The Psalms show us this. They quote other parts of the Old Testament. The Psalms themselves are Bible-filled And we should do the same when we come together. We should just load up all the parts of the service with Bible. Bible themes. Bible quotes. We read the word. We preach the word. We sing the word. Colossians 3.16 says. We pray through the word because our words are often not very good. And there's some good prayers in here. (laughs) It's a word-saturated worship. It's a feasting on his word. The Bible is to be something like the wood in a fire. If I'm not mistaken, you need three things in a fire. You need something that will burn, you need oxygen, and you need heat or spark. 
Okay, so the Word, the Bible, is like logs on the fire. And we need God to come and blow and bring spark, heat to this thing. But we can put a lot of logs in there. We can chuck logs of Bible into a pile on Sunday morning and pray that God shows up and He gives spark and He blows on it. That's what we're after. Bible formed, Bible filled. Thirdly, our praise should consist of revelation and response. Revelation and response. I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean God revealing himself. He speaks. He shows us who he is and what he's done. And we respond. We respond according to what he said. This is how it works. This is always how it works. Revelation, then response. He initiates, we respond. He seeks us, he made us, he made us to reveal himself to us. So it's a silly thing to think that God is this distant being. He's out there somewhere, we're all just groping for him in the dark and some trip over something and accidentally land on him and grab hold of him. And they just got lucky. No, he hasn't hidden himself even though he is invisible. He hasn't hidden himself. He's put the signs of his goodness and his power all over creation so that Psalm 19 says it is shouting at us. It is shouting his glory. It is shouting his power. It is shouting his goodness. It's undeniable. Oh, we're we're running around like this, trying to ignore it, trying not to hear it. But it's there. It's undeniable. He has spoken. He's spoken in his word. He's revealed himself in the stories of one little nation in ancient Near East. And they had prophets. Those prophets wrote and wrote and wrote. They recorded history. Got written down. Got preserved. Songs that were inspired and written down. Sometimes he spoke directly to those prophets. Write this. And they wrote that down. And other times they wrote without him speaking directly, but he spoke through what they wrote down. He has spoken. As Francis Schaeffer famously said, he is there, and he is not silent. That's his very nature. He's a communicating God. Even before creation, he was communicating with himself. In the three persons of the Trinity, there was fellowship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relating, communicating, communing. He made us to share in that. That should be breathtaking to us. And we start to share in it when we start to hear. He's a talking God. We must know what he said, and we must respond accordingly. And this should affect how we think about a... how we think about a corporate worship meeting like this, we should let that fact form how we plan a service at Desert Springs. Think about how a worship service begins here. I know, if you're early enough to, to see it. We almost never begin a service with the first song being how much we love him. Revelation and response. We begin either with a call, calling all of us to worship him, which really is almost before revelation and response, 
Or we'll move right into Revelation and response, and we sing songs at first who are, uh, which are about God, what he's done, what he has said, what he has promised. We don't begin with us because he initiates, he seeks out, then we respond. It forms the way we structure a worship service. Think about how we end a service. After the preaching of God's word, which is revelation, him speaking as it's preached accurately, we respond with at least one last song. That's not just a breather. That's not a stretch your legs thing before we, uh, you know, get you to walk around. We don't want people to fall down because they've been sitting so long as we make them stand and sing one song before they walk out. No, it's not just empty tradition to do one song after the sermon. It's not because we don't know of a different way to land the plane. It's an important piece of congregational participation. It should be in us, after hearing his word preached, to want to say something back. This is a holy thing when we sing that last song. He has spoken for a while, sometimes longer than others. And we feel the need for some sort of antiphonal response back to him in thanks and praise for his word, for his promises, for the salvation we have in Christ. Now, is this revelation, response, dynamic in the Psalms? Yeah, but to be clear, some Psalms do begin with the letter I. Some Psalms begin with something to do. Or I will, that kind of thing. But what quickly follows in those psalms is revelation and response. In most cases, the doing right at the beginning of the psalm or the call right at the beginning of the psalm is like a preface. And then what follows is revelation, who he is, what he's done, and then response. And that's just what we do here on a Sunday morning. Call to worship, then we back up to who he is, then We talk about what he's done, who we are in light of what he's done, and then we sing songs of thankfulness or bowing and praising. Not always, not always in that order, but often, often in that order. And when we do, we have this dynamic revelation and response in mind. Psalm 90 does this. We saw that a few weeks ago. The Psalm of Moses, first 11 verses say, you are to God, you do this, we are in light of this. And then verse 12, it begins prayers. It's like six prayers right after that, asking God to teach us to number our days, that we might apply our heart into wisdom. It's response in light of revelation. A phrase from the Psalms that we say often around here is that God is great and greatly to be praised. It's in three different Psalms, Psalm 49, sorry, 48, 96, and 145. What is this? Revelation and response. He is great, and in light of that, there's a certain response that's due him. It's all over, and not just in the Psalms. In the Psalms, though, that seems to emphasize greatness and grace. Both the revelation and the response seems to sort of revel in two things the most. God's greatness and his grace. That's the fourth thing. 
The Psalms teach us that our praise should focus on the two primary themes of greatness and grace. And when I say greatness, I don't mean like LeBron James great or Frosted Flakes great. I don't mean, you know, like great meal or great day. Or as I said in Virginia where I used to live, great gravy day. I'm not sure what that great gravy day is, but maybe you've had one recently. I don't mean that kind of greatness. When the Bible talks about great, here in the Psalms especially, it means exalted, lofty, majestic, mighty God. And we saw last week that the Psalms often like to mingle happy, joyful, intimate, almost giddy expressions of praise with fearful, awe-filled, bowing expressions of praise. He's both creator and he cares. The Psalms love to put that stuff together to show the contrast between the two. He's God and he's good. He's mighty and he's merciful. Let me show you a couple examples. Look at Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Read a few verses here about God's greatness and grace. And notice how this psalm and the next will bounce between God's greatness and grace. Verse 1. The Lord reigns. Sounds scary at first, right? He's in control. He's big. But let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. But back to greatness. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of the whole earth. But you skip down to verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Look at Psalm 99. Again, it begins in the theme of greatness. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, the angels. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. But then verse 8. Oh, Lord, our God. You answered them, Moses and Aaron, when they asked for mercy. You are, you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. You see the bouncing, the playing off each other, the, the, the light and darkness. And it might seem wrong to say darkness is any part of God, except we read it. It says darkness in Psalm 97. There's something there of heaviness, weight unapproachable glory, and yet that makes 
the intimacy, the nearness, the goodness, the kindness, the care, so much more amazing. I think one of the best images of God's greatness and grace has to be in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Just after his resurrection, Aslan, the Christ figure, remember, he, he plays tag and he wrestles with Lucy. And C.S. Lewis describes it like this. Lucy scrambled over at him to reach him. Aslan leaped. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws, catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy never could tell. Our God is a thunderstorm. The Bible never says he's a kitten, but it has all kinds of similar word pictures for his gentleness and care and even his joy. Later in the book, Lucy remarks that Aslan's paws would be terrible paws if he didn't know how to velvet them. I love that. But how does our God velvet his anger, his justice, his wrath? Well, I already said Aslan was the Christ figure. In that story, and speaking of Christ, God's greatness and his grace is shown supremely in the cross of Christ. You want to see grace and greatness kiss? Look at Jesus. Where the justice and righteousness and holiness of God is displayed in the horrid, violent, dark crucifixion of the righteous Messiah. You want to see grace in all its glory? Here's a king who could speak his enemies into oblivion. And he prays that the father would forgive them. He doesn't even raise a finger, let alone a word against them. The cross shows us that God is just and the justifier. He's just Someone had to die. Someone had to pay. He died in our place. Such mercy. Such justice. It's glory, we could say. And that's what Psalm 21 says. I think it looks ahead to Jesus. And Psalm 21 is ultimately about him when it says, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty, God, you bestow on him. So no, please hear me clearly, there is no right worship, there's no both and worship, doesn't matter how many both ands you heap up, there's no going to him unless you go through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He comes that we might have life and have it abundantly, and the abundant life is one in God's presence, it is one of worship indeed. But we can't come in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own 
talent. We can't come in our own righteousness. Psalm 24 says, who can enter God's presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who hasn't lifted up his soul against another and doesn't have any deceit on his tongue. And that's none of us except Jesus. He is our righteousness. And we receive that righteousness through faith and faith alone. What a welcoming God we have. Now lastly, this psalm shows us that our praise should be historical and heavenward. Historical and heavenward. The psalms look back and they look forward. They look back to what God has done in the past and they look forward to what he will do, his promise to do in the future. So Psalm 33 looks all the way back to creation. It recounts and rehearses details about how the Lord made. It was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. It was by his breath all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Tells it, stay there. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There is powerful relevance for now when we look back simply at creation and know that we're praying to a God who speaks, and it is. A God who deals with the oceans like they're a drop in the bucket. Look back to creation, know that that God is your God. He's the God who says, cast might. Cast your burdens on me, and I will sustain you. There are these historical psalms which look backwards. Remember, they recount some Old Testament story. He's the one of the Red Sea. He's the one of man in the desert and water from the rock. Look back and know that that is the one who is still at work to will and do in you of his good pleasure. Looking back gives us perspective of his power, his goodness, his wisdom, and we're to be those people who remember, who do not forget. And we should be people who find also help looking forward. Praise should look ahead to what's to come. That's why we sing songs about heaven. It tells us that he is not done. Around a hundred times the Psalms talk about what will be forever. He will be forever. His name will be forever. His glory will be forever. His love endures forever. 70 to 80 times the Psalms say, you will, or he will, or God will. He will pluck my feet out of the net. He will hide me in his shelter in a day of trouble. He will guide us forever. He will ransom my soul. He will receive me. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will speak peace to his people. He will command angels for you to watch over you. So be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. These promises are not just for us. They weren't just for Israel, but they extend to us today. 
And they're not just for us, but they extend to generations to come. And they extend to the nations who haven't yet heard. He will be exalted among the nations. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. All the nations will worship before him. All the nations, Psalm 86 says, that he's made, will come and worship before him. They will glorify his name. But it's got to get there. They don't know. It's got to get there. And so one of the things we'll see in the next few weeks is that in praise, God summons and he sends. Both and. He wants us in and he sends us out. He draws us in for praise and he sends us out to gather new worshipers. Both and. So Psalm 57 says, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And Psalm 96 says, oh, tell, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Because it's the most important thing in the world. His praise is the most important thing in the world. That's what God is for. That's why he made us. That's why Jesus came and died and now lives. That's why he decided to have mercy on us. That's what it says in Isaiah 48. For the sake of my praise, I cancel out your sins. For the sake of my praise. That's why we're here. That's why you're here and not at home watering the lawn or a plant. That's why you're here and not sleeping in or at the park or on the mountain. All those things are great. They can be done in worship, constant worship. But there's something special about us meeting together and reflecting the glory of his redemption And hearing others sing about him. That's why we're here. For his praise. And that's why we go from here. That's why we scatter. That's why we give to missions. That's why some will go to faraway places. Like North Africa. That's why we take risks. That's why we risk relationships. By saying, what do you think of Jesus? Oh, I know it could mean pucker up or duck. But he calls you to it, doesn't he? Why? For the sake of his praise. For the sake of his praise. Because he's the Lord and there's none besides him. Because he's great. And say it with me. He's greatly to be praised. 